spark of an all-star team Combines the best minds from all over the scene We got friends of the show coming back, bringing laughs Jokes and they're also dropping facts So kick back, relax, and unwind What you're going to find is going to blow your mind Hi, I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, host of Star Talk Radio I've recruited a crack team of scientists and science educators To help me bring the universe down to Earth And they are the Star Talk Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. I'm also the director of New York City's Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. This week, with our special time capsule episode, we wrap up the second season and tip our hats to those hosts and guests who helped bring science down to Earth. We sent out a survey to all our fans, and you came back to us with your favorite hosts, guests, and episodes. To start off, we'll play your number one favorite All-Stars episode, featuring your favorite host and number one co-host. It's no surprise that your number one favorite All-Star for the second year in a row is Star Talk regular Bill Nye the Science Guy. Co-host Chuck Nice pitches him your cosmic queries about science fiction on TV. Check it out. Here, uh, Kaylee. Uh, Kaylee. Who else could sell, say Kaylee except you? Besides you. <laughs> Who else could butcher the name Kaylee? Yeah, take it. Better than you, Chuck. Here we go. Kaylee Bush wants to know this. In many science fiction movies, hypersleep is used by astronauts. Hypersleep. Hypersleep is yes. used by astronauts on long voyages to make their trips seem shorter. Is hypersleep possible? If so, would it be a valid method to keep future astronauts sane during long trips in space? Uh, a couple things about that. Okay. We, you may have met uh, a bear or squirrels. These kids hibernate. They do a little something called hibernation. Yeah, and so it's very reasonable. They're mammals. Mm-hmm. We're mammals. It's very reasonable that you could figure out how they do it. Right. And uh, then you would enable astronauts to do that. It's not, I don't think it's to entertain, to keep astronauts from going crazy so much as to keep astronauts from aging too right. much, right? You go on these long trips, and then uh, it seems reasonable to do that. However, with that said, Mark Kelly just finished almost a year in space, 340 days in space, and he remarked, you know, you could go two years. I could go two years. Uh, Astronauts are anything but bored. Right. They have, if anything, too much to do. Yeah, that's what he's... Keeps the things going, yeah. One of the things he said uh, is that uh, there's so much to do, there's so many things all day long that he's doing that he doesn't think about it like like that. He doesn't doesn't run out of mental stuff to do. So uh, this is a great question, but very reasonable to to enable astronauts to make this long journey without having to eat as much and process the waste as much, Mm -hmm. having as much time, seriously, in sleep cycles... Uh, very reasonable to have people in suspended animation. And in science fiction movies, what you generally do mm-hmm. is have the people in suspended animation kill each other or die. <laughs> yeah. Or wait, one of the chambers malfunctions. That's right. And when they, they get die. to wherever they're going, they, it's a corpse. Yeah, yeah. A dried up corpse. Yeah, and he didn't even know it or she because right. they were he or she was asleep during this traumatic uh, time. But this is uh, it's a fine idea in science fiction, but it goes way back because we observe bears right. who hibernate. Why couldn't we do that with the right hormones or berry and bark diet? Yes. It's so, a good question. There you go. Good question. Oh, wait, uh, way to go, Kaylee. Uh, Ethan, the cool guy, Smith, 
That's quite a claim. That's what a claim. Yes, he says, why does it seem that with every new generation, there is a new level of both scientific acceptance and scientific ignorance? Which is a wonderful question, especially when you're thinking about science fiction. I mean, he's absolutely right. When you think back from the time of Galileo till now, Jesus, man, the leaps and bounds we've made. But yet when you look at where we are right now, you can't believe the people are such idiots that they believe some of the things they believe. For example, (laughs) give me an example. Like, like for example, that um, human activity may uh, be creating climate change that is deleterious to the entire ecosystem of this planet upon which we live. And denying that. And denying that. Yes, in the face of evidence. Right. Or denying that uh, organisms change through the process of evolution. How about that? Yes. Or, Even though we have clear, clear well, evidence. Fundamental idea in life science. So uh, you're asking a great question. I think people, there's an expression, I think, in almost every culture, the good old days. Good old days. People have a way, We I think it's a survival mechanism. We have a way of suppressing the really traumatic times yes. and embracing the happy times. Right. And these are the good old days. And so the ultimate manifestation of that is if only things were the way they were when I understood everything. Uh-huh. Now uh, it gets away from me as these changes around us are happening in technology, culture, uh, the speed of things. But you got to get over it. It's back to this deal that I talk about all the time. Some people are greatly troubled by change. Yes. Other people accept it as part of the excitement of being alive. Right. So uh, this is a great question, but we are working very hard here at Star Talk to empower the world's citizens to know science mm-hmm. and a planetary society to know the cosmos and our place within it. That's why we want to know the cosmos and realize that we don't know everything and pursue truth in nature, to find out nature's rules so that we know where we fit in in the great scheme of things. Yes. Where did we come from? Are we alone? These are deep questions answers with science. Some people think it's cool. Other people are troubled. And the troubled people are the ones living in the past. There you have so it. Far, so far. Hey, uh, I have to say that um, um, that was a very cool question, Ethan, cool guy Smith. So. Thank you, Ethan Smith, the cool guy. <laughs> Lead on. Here we go. Uh, BTU 0105. British Thermal Unit 0105. 105 wants to know this. The professor on Gilligan's Island always seemed to be using seawater and coconuts to power gadgets like radios. First of all, is that feasible? Uh, (laughs) Depends. If you have enough dissimilar metals, by the classics you might be familiar with are copper and zinc. Mm-hmm. Then you can make a battery, but I don't know that you can power a coconut, coconut radio. Right, I was going to say. But I remind you, a lot I of think the, the coconut stuff was that there ha- just for uh, aesthetics. Give it the tropical island feel. Yeah, exactly. I remind you, a lot of the stuff the professor did on Gilligan's Island was not real, <laughs> <laughs> and so this enabled uh, the it enabled the plot to be advanced. And you'll notice, generally in Gilligan's Island, he'd get it almost working. Yes. For a few seconds. A few seconds. And then, oh, and then doggone it. And so, uh, with that said, changing the subject to a more recent, more desperate situation on Lost. Ah. Would I say as a, I was a pretty good Boy Scout. Right. 
Get off the island. Exactly. What's wrong with you people? Because right, all they cared about was what was happening on the island. That's I just got to say. When yeah. I watched the, the um, was it the Blair Witch Project? Yes. Get out of the woods. What's wrong with you? <laughs> we lost the map. Well, follow the stream, right. you clowns. There you go. I had no sympathy for those people. Maybe somebody will kill them and we can move on. Yes. <laughs> oh, Bill, Bill, you're so harsh. I'm just telling you, these are... Through the process of science, you would find a way. You would find a way to get off the, out of the woods, mm -hmm. off the island. Next, planetary scientist Carolyn Porco is the leader of the imaging science team of the Cassini mission, which recently ended its exploration of Saturn with a dramatic and spectacular grand finale. I call her Madam Saturn. On this episode of Star Talk All Stars, on this episode of Star Talk All Stars, celebrating Voyager 1, Carolyn takes the driver's seat with a little help from comedic co host Maeve Higgins, musician Sean Ono Lennon, and filmmaker Emer Reynolds. We're all having a good time talking about the Voyager mission because it's the 40th anniversary of its launch coming up in August and September. Uh, there were two Voyager spacecraft and um what's with that tell us about what you learned about the the dual shot i love that story in the film when uh, the, one of the characters talks about that the press were totally confused you know <laughs> yeah, really i thought that was uh, like nothing's changed right they're still confused so they like they launched voyager 2 first because it was going on a different trajectory and voyager 1 which was launched 2 weeks later was going to overtake it and actually get to jupiter first so the scientists thought clearly that's Just, that's yeah. the way the we should name it yeah it should be voyager 1 but yeah. the press were insane like they were like why would you launch voyager 2 first and really deranged about <laughs> i just i just love hearing that even nasa and the most brilliant people in the world also have a dysfunctional relationship with the with the press. <laughs> it's mean, a comfort. Oh, it's wait a minute! Musicians, it's wait a minute! Everyone. Don't don't get me started. That I've just spent the last twenty seven years, actually, maybe more accurately, the last twenty years, having to deal with the press because of putting press releases out. You know, on with Cassini and so on, and it's mad. It's really totally mad. What's the kind of thing? Is it that like um, they want the story that you don't want to tell them, or like what's the kind of? No, issue? it's not that. It's just that reporting. I mean, I'm saying it. I'm joking around. Yeah. I, I understand what the problem is, uh, and it's gotten so much worse because media these days has to be instant. It goes out. There's mm. not no time for people to digest it, write a good story you know, put it out for the next morning. They got to put it out in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So lots of times I've been interviewed and they said, oh, I'm going to put this online, you know, in at the end of the day or something like that. Uh, so they're really all under tremendous pressure. And whenever you're doing anything having to do with science, you know, oftentimes it's the subtleties that make the difference. It's, you know, it's the nuances of an explanation, not it, we, especially... We've explored, been exploring planets now for six decades, and we know a lot of the fundamentals. So now we're into those more complex questions, the more subtle questions. I found so, it interesting, though, that the scientists were disappointed and also excited at people's interest in the the LP, the Golden Record, which is funny because obviously they wanted people to ask about the science and stuff, but the interest in the music aspect of Voyager was was huge basically and and I felt I, there was a moment in the film where they said that was a little frustrating but also exciting because people were so excited about it okay yeah and I, I well everybody was excited about it and you know don't 
don't ignore the fact that it was headed by Carl Sagan and he was an enormous draw. Mm-hmm. Um, but but well, that, there certainly was some ambiguity in NASA as to what it was for, you know, that it right. had no scientific function. It didn't have function. a scientific yeah. purpose, yeah, yeah, which makes sense. I mean, I, but it's interesting it's also that the, humans, the, the photo that Carl theory. said to take, the last photo, the, the blue pale blue dot photo, had no scientific purpose, but that sort of is what made the branding and media splash of the whole mission to the public. Mm-hmm. So you never know what's going to sort of hook the public, well, right? Carl knew. Carl knew. And I had actually, I'll toot my horn a little bit before we take our callers. We've got two callers. Uh, There were a a few, three people, four, I don't know, who suggested taking this picture of Earth. And I had suggested it too. I didn't even know Carl had done it. And I couldn't get anybody interested in it because the question always came back, what is the science in it? They just couldn't wrap their head around that. That's also something that often happens when a woman says a thing, it's ignored, <laughs> and then like a man says the exact same thing. I'm and then great like, we'll I'm it. glad. I'm glad you said that. I get tired of trying to remind people of that. Okay, so we're going to take <laughs> yeah. a caller from... Might have been better if Sean said that. Alan, it was the 70s, too. It must have been intense. Alan mm. in Tennessee, he was got a question. Tell us something, Alan. Hi. Hi. Uh, I, was, I was a big... Uh, Carl Sagan follower too, and always has been. But my question is: is uh, on the Golden Record, I believe you've called it. How does it get played if it's attached to the Voyager, and the Voyager is going to be traveling infinitely throughout the solar system or throughout the deep space? Well, that's a good question, uh, and and any reasonable person would ask that question. It turns out they thought of this. Uh, first, they have to make a few assumptions. They have to make the assumption that if a spacefaring civilization actually could pick up Voyager, actually find it, uh, they're probably smart enough to figure out the status of technological advancement or lack thereof of the civilization that made it. Uh, and the record actually came with a stylus, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it came with instructions on how you're supposed to wire up the stylus. But to build a turntable, yeah. Yeah, well, but... there's also not a lot of, like, uh, gas to, to, to have a medium for the sound to travel through, which even if the record was placed. So it's an interesting question, but, it's, you know, it's the, it's, it's the well, assumption that they would aliens would be able to figure out the record player, I think, is valid, because if they've got that far, then they would... Yeah, what's clever. this about? What's oh, okay, this about? Okay, okay, okay. Go ahead. This is Alan again. Yes. That, that, I've heard that before, and I agree with that. They'll be intelligent enough, but they're going to have to stop and detach the record, or, or they're going to have to stop Voyager, correct? Oh, yeah, they'll have to capture it. They'll put it in a museum. It'll be the... Okay, so, we'll, okay, so it won't actually be traveling infinitely through deep space. Well, it It'll will. It'll be captured and it will, or hit something or land or... It will if if it, no one finds it, yeah. It, I mean, is there any chance that it will bang into something by itself? No, not okay. really. They, they, okay. they kind of pre- can predict okay. what... There's nothing, there's very little out there. Right. But we, they didn't know about ro- how many rogue planets were in the galaxy at the time when they launched it, whereas I think they found that like the majority of planets in our galaxy are rogue, which is a lot. So we, there could be some giant... Dark. I don't. I don't know that they really detached know. Detached sun. No, detached planet. Well, I read that there's a lot of rogue planets anyway. But well, it they could. It could hit a rogue planet. Um, well, well there's two of them. So the point. The point is that it's so empty out there. Uh, it's probably not likely to hit sure. anything. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. On this time capsule episode, we're revisiting some of our favorite moments from this past season. You voted for an extended classic as one of your favorite shows from season two, 
And you voted for astronaut Mike Massimino as one of your favorite Star Talk All-Stars. Mike hosts the episode, Putting Humans on Mars. With co-host Maeve Higgins and science guest John Charles, the chief scientist at NASA's Human Research Program. Check it out. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot here. Are we actually going to go? John, what, what, is, what are we waiting for here? Because we had one of my colleagues who's a newer astronaut was saying that, you know, uh, uh, the new class of astronauts, they say they're going to send them to Mars. They said the same thing to my astronaut class 20 years ago. Are we going to go or what? What's the story? I'm convinced we're going to go. I'm, I hope it's in the 2030s. I, I, it is inconceivable that humans will not go to Mars. I hope it's NASA humans. I hope NASA is the agency that does it. But at some point, sometime, some agency and some administration and some nationality will decide it's the right time to go. I think NASA is doing the right thing by analyzing the risks and making it as safe and as efficient and as productive as possible to justify what will be a very large cost. But inevitably, somebody will go. There you are. Yep. What do you think, Maeve? We're ready. He sounds like Not he ready yet, ready. actually, <laughs> but we will be ready. All right, it's time for the lightning round. Okay. Rapid fire. So, uh, John, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so uh, Maeve's going to ask this question. I'm going to hit this bell. I think I'm just going to hit it whenever I want, but apparently there's some method to it. <laughs> when I'm going to hit this thing, uh, it's really great. You know, I rode my bike here today, and you this did. bell drives people crazy. <laughs> I have a bell on my bike. In New York City, it's necessary because people are always in the way. Get out of the way, and you just do this. Hey, do you wear so, your space helmet when you're on your bike? <laughs> no, I wear a bike helmet, and I need more than that. It's one of the most dangerous things. I'm glad I got here. Same. New York City's dangerous. All right, okay, uh, on bicycle. All okay. right, so here we go. We're going to do this. I'm going to ring this bell, I guess, for the next question or whenever appropriate. Hit us. Lightning round. Okay. Um, this question is from Jonathan Laird, and he is asking Mike, and then after I'm going to put the question to you, John, if given the opportunity, would you personally like to be among the first humans to colonize, move to, or visit Mars? Two parts. Uh, you know, yes, I want to go visit, and I want to come home. John? Yeah, Mike, I don't want to go to Mars. I would like to go to the moon, and I would like to go to the space station, but the Mars, Mars is too far away and too dirty. There you have it. You don't want to go to Mars. I want to go to Mars. He wants to send other people there. What kind of example is that? Scratch that answer. You want to send everybody else. The guy that knows most about it wants to send somebody else. There's something wrong with that. All right. Okay. The next one is from Brandon, and he contacted us on Snapchat. This question, John, this is for you. Could we use artificial gravity by either spinning a habitation unit around a central support or by counterweighting it with another mass? Yes. Yes, the answer is yes. Yes, and we're studying that. The Human Research Program is investigating whether that's a good way to, to provide treat, uh, countermeasures for people in space and whether it's cost-effective. So yes, yes, yes. Great. There was the bell. Go. Troy Shu on Snapchat. What should mankind's first words on Mars be? A reference to Armstrong or not? What do you think, Mike? What do I think? Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, Neil Armstrong thought of that stuff after he landed on the moon because he didn't want to get distracted. What? Do you know that story, John? That's right. And so that's I asked exactly him that right. question. He did not get a publicist, his wife. No one thought of that. He took care of it after he landed. So I think what wow. you should do is get there first and then be inspired. Instinct. Okay, great. Next question. This is from Taylor Lund. Um, Mass and Higgs. Oh, this is you and me. Okay. okay. Uh, my question is, would it make more logistical sense to build a possible settlement above ground or to dig out a subterranean network of tunnels and caverns that would be protected from the environment as well as give explorers access to subterranean geology? Can I just say, yes. I'm not going to answer that question. I don't have a clue. <laughs> yes, and I will say, I don't care. I just want to go. So we're going to leave it. John, what do you say? 
I say tunnels. I'm all for tunnels. Tunnels. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next one, Radule Alexandru from Facebook. Will you have the possibility to meet the Mars rover? Where I guess whenever somebody goes to Mars, will they get to meet the rover? John? It's a big planet. It depends on how good your aim is when you land. There you are. But will it still be there? If oh, yeah, we get there sure, 100 years there. from now, be, like the stuff on the moon is still there. That's right. It'll be there for a long time. It'll be there for a long time. So, yes, just got to okay. get there. Last question. Okay, thinking big. This is from J-Law on Instagram. If the magnetic field is what protects us here on Earth, is there any way in the future that we could come up with a way to mimic that on Mars? What do you think, John? That's a great question. In fact, guess what? We're looking at that in the human research program and, and trying to understand exactly what the magnetic field's protective effects are. But I think for a short term, at least, we, we're okay even without a magnetic field. Yeah, but that is one thing that's helped us on Earth uh, live here, isn't it, John? That they don't exactly have on right. Mars. It's a big, it's a big deal. It protects us, uh, exactly. and 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 yeah, that's not just a, it's not it's not so subtle. That's really important. Yeah, it's like magnetic field, coffee, Instagram. We need all those things. Those yes, things. Instagram. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> what <Okay>. else? <laughs> bell. I'm gonna okay, the bell. great. Okay, this one. Do you think this is from Joshua Mikhail? Thirty seconds. Do you think future colonies on Mars would be international communities or could they be like an American colony, a Chinese colony, a Brazilian colony, etc.? I think they're going to be international just because of the cost of the expense of getting there. I don't think any one nation wants to pay that, that huge bill. But uh, who knows what will happen after they get there. Maybe they'll split up into national colonies afterwards. I think, I think they're going to be international because this way we can pull food from all the, all the different cultures and it'll be better eating <laughs> and share the expense. And I think they're also going to have a component of commercial companies too. All right, that's it. End of the lightning round. Great job, guys. That's you won. it. Your, your, this, your prize is a trip to Mars. This was this <laughs> was this was great, John. Um, you got to go back to work now and get us yeah. to Mars. <laughs> all right, Mike. All right, I'm on it. We're, we're all you counting bet. on you. We've got plenty right. of volunteers just here in this building in New York City alone. Mm -hmm. So all right, we're counting on you. For me. Thank thank you very very much for joining us, John. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, you coming and sharing with us and having some fun today. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for asking you, John. me. Bye. It. Thanks, Maeve. And, and Maeve, of course, uh, great great to have you here. Yeah, so good to thank be you, here. Thank you very much for letting me in. Good luck cycling home. I, I Yes, I'm going to ring this bell with I'm going to take this bell with me and ring it and get people out of the way as I go down the, <laughs> go down the uh, Hudson Greenway here in New, beautiful New York City. It's a beautiful day. And for all of you listening out there, thank you for listening to us. This is Star Talk All-Stars, Mike Massimino at Astro Mike, signing off. Bill. Neil. You're back. It's good to be back. In the crib. Give you a little bit of wine, just to... It's pretty good. Not that you need loosening up. No, but I <laughs> You're a loosey-goosey guy. When you hang with Neil, peoples, uh, it's... It's always wine around. It's often wine around, but this is really good. I have to say, it's really good. I'm, I'm happy to, because I want to, you know, make sure you keep coming back. Um, yeah, I'll come back. Right. <laughs> oh, I will. It's excellent. So this thing about Mars, I know you, you know, you're a space guy. Yes. CEO of the Planetary yes. Society. and You're on the board. No, I'm on the board. This is the, this is the disclosure. Yeah. Yes. And, but so, uh, have you thought about going to Mars? I think about going to Mars every day. Every hour. <laughs> I do. Okay, I would okay. go to Mars, okay. but as a professional... Wait, 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 wait. Thinking about going to Mars is different from actually choosing to go to Mars. Would you choose to go to Mars? It would. The answer is absolutely, but it depends. Okay, you're a single man with no kids. Yeah. If you were married with kids, would you still go to Mars? Uh, yeah, I'd have to ask you. It depends on the wife. I'm not your wife. No, in other words, I think there are certain wives... I'm not your husband. 
I think there are certain have to be wives, heteronormal here. I still think there are certain wives who would be delighted to have their husband leave for three and a half, four years. <laughs> That's They're about up, what it is. Yeah. It's nine months there at the minimum yeah. energy if you transfer. Punch it. Yeah. If you punch it, and then you got to hang out until Earth and Mars are back. 26 months. Back in, back in line. Yeah. And so. And the word in line, everybody, it's kind of cool. The Earth catches up to Mars. So there's an optimum time to leave. Yeah. In fact, there's a, really a time to leave, the only time that's practical to leave. And it's every 26 months. Yeah, yeah. So you Yes, go. Neil, I would go to Mars because why do I want to go to Mars? Yeah, why? To look for signs of life. Yeah, but they don't need you. We can send a robot. Yeah, but I why, will... Why don't we send a robot? I'll stay home on the beach with well, a tequila. Well, so you asked, we started, if it were possible. <laughs> but let me say, if I were the guy that made the discovery, I'd feel pretty good about it. Furthermore... Making the, the, the discovery of life. Yeah. Furthermore, let me remind us that it's been estimated, I, th I believe quite conservatively, that what our very best robots do in a week, our average geologist does in about a minute. Yeah, that's what I agree with that. So if you could get somebody there who's skilled, man, you could... See, yeah, the but thing it, is, no, I, it'll cost I you love 100, the rocks. It costs you a hundred times more to get the people there. Well, that would be great if it were only a hundred. I think it's more like 10,000 times 10,000 times more? Yeah. Make sure no one will hear that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but, so, but call it a thousand times more. So that means I can send a thousand robots before I send you. And I love you, Bill, but I think I'm going to send the robots. I know, but here's the, you got to ask yourself, why are you doing it? Is it for science? Okay. Or is it for exploration? You're right. If it's science, I'm sending robots. But if you just want to have somebody come back and wax poetic... Yeah. He, Furthermore, if you want to engage everyone on Earth, right? Yeah, and then that's true. If we send you, that that that'd be the, the joint. That I mean, would be people who would be talking about it. <laughs> space suits like, would have bow ties. Bow ties on the space. <laughs> it would be nuts. It would be crazy. But here's the thing. And they'll be like, I live in New York. I live three blocks from Broadway, where the ticker tape parade is. They'd be ticker tape parade in your ass. I was on. I, I live on Sixth. Yeah, yeah. So, just when stuff happens in the street, it's a it's a community thing. So I live if down. Stuff happened on Mars. It would be a community thing. It would be a world community yeah. thing. That's now let me go on to say, some of my best friends, Neil, are geologists. Okay. My beloved uncle was a geologist, but I got I've seen the rocks. I'm good with the rocks. I want to look for signs of life. I want to go looking for those. Stromatolites, those fossilized bacterial mats of Mars crobes. That's the point. Mars crobes? It's my own coinage, a little nibonic. Nibonic? Uh, Mar Mars crobes. Is that Mars version of a microbe? Yes, because do they have DNA? What if they had DNA? That means we're all descendants from Martians. It would be just extraordinary. No, it would be more extraordinary if it didn't have DNA, uh, it would, yet it's still encoded life. That would life. be extremely, extremely... It would be another freaking. genesis. It would be second gen Mars genesis. It would change the Mars freaking world. Genesis. One of your favorite episodes featured Star Talk All-Star, senior astronomer for the SETI Institute, Seth Shostak. He was joined in studio by comedic co-host Eugene Merman and climate scientist Ken Caldera in the episode, Get Real About Climate Change. Check it out. All right. Well, look, let, let's get right into this because, you know, there are people out there who are not sure whether climate change really is the real deal or, you know, it's all an illusion of some sort or maybe even a hoax. But, you know, what, what about it? Well, climate's certainly changing. The planet's substantially warmer today than it was uh, 100 years ago, and it's getting warmer. Okay. Is that by a, because of a cycle caused by the Industrial Revolution? <laughs> 
I don't know if it's a cycle, but it's uh, it's thought that most of that warming is due to emissions that resulted from the Industrial Revolution. And, and that's mostly what? Carbon dioxide, Carbon right? dioxide gas, Okay, yes. now that's a freshman physics problem, right? You, you know, you fill a room with carbon dioxide, you let in some sunlight, the sunlight comes down, it heats up the carpet, and then that re-radiates, what, infrared? I mean, this is freshman physics, right? There's no doubt that carbon dioxide... Earth is hot because of hot carpets? Yes, yes. Sounds right. fair. Are you trying to pull the rug out of this uh, <laughs> argument? You know, I mean, is there, there's no question about this physics, right? Yes, it's well known that Venus is very warm because its atmosphere is full of carbon dioxide and that one of the reasons why Mars is colder is because there's not much carbon dioxide in its atmosphere. And so, to explain planetary climates, it's well established that carbon dioxide is a key greenhouse gas. Okay, so, I mean, you, you can't argue with the fact that we are putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I think like one molecule out of every, what, 2,500 these days in the air is carbon dioxide. We're putting more in. How could you have anything other than climate change? Yeah, the hard part for climate scientists or carbon cycle scientists is to understand why the carbon dioxide isn't accumulating in the atmosphere even faster than it is because only about half of the carbon dioxide we emit each year is showing up in the atmosphere and the other half is going somewhere else. Wait, so it's one particle in 2,500? And what, it, what was it? Is that true? Is that the? I, I hope it's true. It's four hundred parts per million or something, right? Yeah, it's point oh four percent, four hundred parts per million. And so, what was it, say, four hundred years ago? It was uh, below. Uh, it's increased. It used to be two hundred eighty parts per million, and now it's around four hundred parts per million. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it, gone up. Okay. So why look? If, if people ask you, and I suspect they ask you this all the time, as you're sitting on the bus going to work. Uh, you know, do you, is, is do you it, have a sign that says "Ask me about the climate"? Yeah, yeah. Well, he has little lapel pins, uh, and, and they ask you, "Come on, is it is it real, or is this some sort of hoax, or is this just an attempt to des- destroy the mining uh, mining industry or the oil industry?" What, what do you tell them? Well, sometimes I've been on panels with different people who don't believe in climate change or think we shouldn't do anything about it. And and I advise them, I said, look, don't argue against the science of climate change. Argue that, oh, it's something we can deal with because the science of climate change is so well established that you end up just looking ignorant, arguing against it. And so better to accept the science and really the, more of the uncertainty is on how will human and social systems deal with it. But the basic idea that you add more greenhouse gases, more carbon dioxide to the planet, the planet heats up, that's pretty well established. All right. So, and are they happy that you give them this answer? Do they say, you know, you changed my mind? Uh, unfortunately, not. Sometimes if you're having lunch with one of these people, say by the end of lunch, they're agreeing with you. And then an hour later, you're on the panel with them and they're back to saying the same thing. So, I have a question. How often is the person who disagrees at all really informed in the interdisciplinary world of climate science? Like, how often is there an actual person who has anywhere near roughly the same amount of information that a scientist would actually have. Does that ever happen? Well, there are a bunch of people who have these kind of factoids that they keep on trotting out. I mean, an example of this factoid is when you... We're increasing the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere now, and all our model projections and understanding of geochemistry and so on tells us that thousands of years into the future, the planet will still be substantially warmer than it is now. But there are some people who, that an individual molecule of CO2 
will get absorbed by a plant or by the oceans and then come back out in about six or seven years. Mm -hmm. And so, for one, then they'll say, oh, well, we know a molecule only stays in the atmosphere six or seven years, so what's the problem? And you say, well, yeah, but the elevated concentrations will stay high for many thousands of years. And so they have these kind of factoids that they bring up. But is anyone ever like a full, like, are there significant... Because people, yeah, they have these factoids and they quote stuff, but are they ever really an actual scientist or are they more just, like, I could have a factoid, but I'm just a, I'm a comic. Yeah, some of them are scientists in something, you know, so, like, oh. I have a degree in, in something, you know. <laughs> like, I'm a, like a degree in shoes or biology. And, and then you say, okay, I'm a scientist and I should know. And so, yeah, not, not a degree in Celsius or something. Well, what about, I mean, do you ever point them to things that, you know, appear in the news? Like recently, there's this long, I don't know what it is, 3,300-mile-long crack in the Larsen Sea ice shelf. Now, probably not many listeners have ever visited the Larsen Sea ice shelf, but it's down there in the Antarctic Peninsula. And if that breaks off, you've got a chunk of ice melting in the ocean that's bigger than some of the states in this country. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on that's unprecedented. And one of the problems is that climate evolves over many thousands of years. And, and you know, human lives are typically less than a century. And so, we, to us, we don't see the, the, these changes. And, and, you know, so we don't know, oh, are these ice sheets breaking off? Is that a normal thing that happens all the time? And it's only the geologists and the paleoclimatologists who spend the time studying what happened in Earth's ancient past, you can see that, oh, what's happening today is really unusual. We're back on Star Talk All-Stars. You're listening to a special Time Capsule episode. In keeping with the cherished Star Talk tradition, we sent out a survey to our fans asking you to select your favorite hosts and episodes. And the results are in. Let's take a listen to our newest Star Talk All-Star, neuroscientist Dr. Heather Berlin, as she tackles the topic of consciousness with the help of comedic co-host Chuck Nice and philosopher David Chalmers. This is uh, Adam Rammer from Facebook. And Adam wants to know this. Is free will an illusion? One of my favorite views about this matter is we have to believe in free will. We have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it depends on what you mean by free will. It's a really annoying thing that philosophers often say. It all depends what you mean right. by the word. What is freedom? A freedom is just something like the ability to... Normally, we say someone's acting freely, roughly, when they can do what they want. If I want a sandwich and I can get a sandwich, if I want to go to the movies tonight and I can go to the movies tonight, then we say, hey, I'm free because I could do what I want. Now, some people say, ah, but you weren't truly free because maybe all that was determined right. in advance and you're unraveling, you're just working like clockwork. And maybe the fact that what I wanted was determined in advance by the laws of physics. It was determined that I would want to go to the movies and therefore it was determined that I went to the movies and then they'll say, ah, so that's not free. I guess what I'm inclined to think is, whoever said I got to choose what I want? You know, there are some things that are just part of my makeup. And so on. If, as long as I can do, if I can get the things that I, that I want to do, then I've got a certain kind of free will. But if you require that free will means what I do is completely unpredictable in principle and not determined in advance, then who knows? Maybe we don't have free will. Well, that's a – I'm sorry. To have it. I, I, so I think what people want to know is are the choices that I make truly choices or 
has every choice that I've made in life been manipulated somehow by circumstances mm. that are either a compilation of circumstances or one, uh, one particular predictor that came along and, and moved me to that direction? I mean, this is this is something I've thought a lot about. Um, so it's some like it's one of my favorite topics. Um, again, I, I agree it, that it depends on how you define it. So if you take the sort of classic Cartesian definition of free will, it's saying that if everything in the environment was exactly the same and everything in your brain was exactly the same, like every neuron firing was exactly the same way, could you have done otherwise? Could you have chosen otherwise? Yeah, right. Okay. And so, at least according to what we see in neuroscience, the answer is is no. Mm -hmm. We And there's this very famous experiment in the 1980s done by Benjamin Libet where they look at brain activation. Um, it was very controversial, and there's some people who still refute it. But basically, looking at brain activation and saying to a person, you know, you can press this button whenever you get the urge to do so. Right. And a person will just have to look at this little, like, sort of thing going around the clock and say where it was, at what point when they had the intention to move, not even when they, because it takes time to actually do the motion. Right, exactly. So they would say exactly when they had the intention to move. And then they found that about 300 milliseconds before they even had the conscious intention that they were about to make a move, you would see this gearing up of brain activation. Mm -hmm. You called it the readiness potential. So the brain is kind of gearing up for you to go either, let's say, left or right. Mm -hmm. And now modern techniques using fMRI can make tell you, decide whether you're going to go left or right up to 10 seconds even before you're even consciously right. aware of so what you Before way. you're consciously aware, we can quantifiably measure that you're going to go left or right? With pretty decent accuracy. Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's, so, that's fast. That's insane. What I say... <laughs> that's awesome. I think that... I often, my sort of saying on this is that maybe your unconscious has free will, but you're just the last to know about it. Oh, man, we just went down the <laughs> rabbit hole! <laughs> like, no, I'm sorry, guys. Let's move on. <laughs> hey, Scarlett Franks from Instagram says this. Hi, Dr. Berlin. I have, a I have a dissociative identity disorder, and I'd love to know what consciousness research makes of this condition. Are my alters dissociative? Greek consciousness, or are they one fragmented consciousness? Mm -hmm. So basically, um, what she's talking about is called dissociative identity disorder, or DID, which was formerly called multiple personality disorder. Right. Now, the reason the name changed is because they used to think that it was um, many different personalities, mm -hmm. right? That kind of. But the reason we name changed the name is because we think actually it's you have this one identity that gets fragmented out into these different, what we call dissociative identity states, mm -hmm. okay? So now, usually, what you have is one, um, a lot of the time, people who have this have experienced some sort of traumatic event in their life, okay. which triggers this. It's actually very uh, adaptive to kind of dissociate. We all do it in certain states, you know, to be kind of out of your body to, if something really scary is happening or, you know, protect our psyche. Um, but if you often experience a lot of trauma, it might be you're in a place where you can never get back. Okay, and this is one of those conditions. So you have a traumatic identity state a lot of the time where they have access to all the traumatic memories and the emotions associated with them. And then they have these neutral identity states. They'll have one or maybe many where 
they don't have access to those memories. They say it never happened to them. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is they don't even have a physiologic reaction if you read them, say, a memory script of something where in the traumatic state, they'll have an increased heart rate and um, they'll feel all these emotions. And in the neutral state, they won't at all. Uh, so it's a really interesting phenomena. And one idea is that what we did, there's some neuroimaging studies that show that when they're in these different states, there are different patterns of brain activation. Wow. And it actually takes more activation to stay in that neutral state. You have parts of the prefrontal cortex that are down-regulating, that are turned on and suppressing parts of the brain that have to do with memory and emotion. So the brain is, con well, not consciously, the brain is actively working yes. to keep you in this protective state. Exactly. Because the traumatic state, it sees as a harm. Right. And if you were in that state all the time, it would be too overwhelming. too overwhelming. You wouldn't be adapted. And actually, the goal of therapy is to integrate these different states to come back into one so that you have access to the traumatic memories, but you're able to deal with them in a, in a way that's adaptive. So this makes sense because when you're in a traumatic state like that, everything in your body is bad for you. Like your cortisol, your stress levels, adrenaline, all these things are bad for you. So if you were constantly in that state, I could see your brain saying, yo, man, we got to do something yeah. or this is going to kill us. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is it but like then, that? But then it becomes maladaptive when you can't control the switching between these uh, states. And, you know, you're in these two different brain states and gotcha. that can be associated with different personalities, even with different reactions to drugs. In some cases, they're allergic to something in one state and not in another. I mean, it's amazing. One In one case, she was blind in one state and could see in another. And this does raise a philosophical question, which is, are there actually, is there more than one person in here? Is it just three personalities of one person? Ooh. Or is it three people, you know, the three faces of Eve or whatever? Is right. there actually three different people in there? And the people who argue for both, I think the consensus is probably one person, three modes or personas that, that person adopts. But there are more extreme cases, you know. People stop, there are experiments where people cut their brain. Mm -hmm. down the middle between the hemispheres. Mm -hmm. And basically you've got two hemispheres inside your head which are to some extent independent, independent of each other. Well, why couldn't it be? People in one skull. Why couldn't it be? I mean, we do have physical chimeras in, in real life where people have two sets of DNA inside their same body. Yeah. Why couldn't we have two people inside the same brain? Well, I'm I, just asking a question. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm, making a statement. I would say it's more like two different states of consciousness. I think our... Our con con the idea of a person or personality is a construct. Okay. We create it over time, given our memories and how we've behaved in the past. And okay. um, so we have a sense of self and the sense of how we'll tend to act in certain situations. So it could be that this person, when they're in one brain state, they're a certain type of personality. And when they're in another brain state, they're a different type of personality. I wouldn't call it two different people. Okay. It's just two different brain states with what two different constructs. The split contracts. brain case, the split the brain brain case the is different. And I think that is more like you have these two consciousnesses in the brain, not Separate two consciousnesses. personalities. Most of the time, it just appears as if there's one person there, but you can do experimental things like show something to one half of the visual field and not the other and get different reactions. Maybe your right arm reaches out and says, this is great. And your left arm says, no way. Get out. Yeah. But actually, I mean, we all have these consciousnesses in our head all the time. We just kind of, there's one dominant one. Okay. But there's always lots of stuff going on in the background. Wow. So uh, with that, I think we should uh, wrap up this segment. Okay. Um, hey, Scarlett Franks, thanks so much for the question. That was, uh, that was incredible. We'll close out this episode with yet another episode hosted by the beloved Bill Nye. Here, he helps us combat climate change with co-host Chuck Nice and climate scientist Radley Horton. 
Dr. Horton, have you heard about the Science March? Yeah. So there was a Reddit conversation, which is another one of the electric social media things on the computer machines the kids use. And a guy suggested having a science march that would be akin to, or march of scientists or scientifically inclined people, akin to the women's march to raise awareness of science. And, you know, there's a lot of concern at um, the Environmental Protection Agency that they've been instructed, uh, it's better than a rumor, they've been instructed not to... I guess you do release a press release. Yeah. Or uh, or report anything more about climate change. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the model for that is Governor... Um, Scott. ...from Florida, who thinks by keeping people from using the phrase climate change, somehow Florida will not be affected by climate change. Yeah, like it's Voldemort or something. You uh, yeah, yeah. You can't mention it. You can't say his name. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Radley, Brad... Do you think that's a good idea, having a climate march? I do. Um, I think it's very important to, you know, we talked earlier about ultimately the public has to lead in some sense. This needs to be um, an issue, climate science, that the public cares about. They need to understand the vulnerabilities. They need to understand the science is clear and that there are huge risks, whether we're talking about our military, uh, the very young, people who live along the coast. Climate change is going to affect everybody. And Mm -hmm. I think if a broad group of scientists, not just climate scientists, but scientists more generally, uh, advocate in some sense for the need uh, for continued funding, for continued ability to speak publicly, publicly and publish and promote their research. Get on Star Talk All Stars, <laughs> way of example. Yeah, that's you know that's the way to help get those messages out. And you don't want scientists feeling stifled. You do want diversity of opinions. You want everybody to be able to speak. Um, you don't want to you don't want to muzzle. I think that's the key to to also having people isn't go that into part of the problem right now is that. Everybody is given an opportunity to speak. I mean, there was a time when you, know, you were a dumbass. You had to shut up, okay? <laughs> Nobody wanted to hear what you had to say. We're on a freaking podcast. I'm sorry. Chuck Nice. You're a, you, we are as free to speak as it gets. We I, are part of the problem. I, I'm not talking about that. Use that quote over <laughs> and over there. Hi, you guys on the conservative cable news networks. Right. But Take the, that sentence that Bill Nye just said and just crank it. Knock yourselves out. <laughs> but I'm just saying that... Isn't that part of the problem? Like, you know, you have people who get to muddy the waters because everybody now gets to have an opinion about this. And the truth is, there was a time when you were a dumbass, you had to shut up. Now you can get on social media, you can get on the internet, and you can spout all this nonsense, and you will find some traction with some people. Whereas in times past, you didn't have that. People didn't have that ability to do that. Well, we'll see what happens, because uh, the current administration is being so, as we record so aggressive towards the media, towards the press. Mm-hmm. It's got to backfire. You can't just call all the press people idiots or evil or unfair or dishonest and expect the press, the mainstream people, and especially the cable people, not to rebound with equally rabid nuttiness. And so I remember, you guys, when Richard Nixon resigned. Mm. It was extraordinary, but not... Uh, the world kept spinning. I didn't say goodbye. I said so long. <laughs> and so so uh, I don't know if the, the modern word everybody loves, I don't know if the current approach of the administration is sustainable. Mm. Everybody right. loves that word. But so you would participate in a march. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would too. I, yeah. uh, I guess I should be there. Now, I am beholden to my board of directors at the Planetary Society, but uh, we, all, we, we have a thing we can ask ourselves. What would Carl Sagan do? Ah. Carl Sagan started the Planetary Society, and uh, he would, at least in my experience with him, um, spent a little time with him, he would just be coming unglued at this. Yeah. So, and everybody respects that guy because he was such a good communicator. Everybody respects Dr. Uh, respects Dr. Sagan's opinions, uh, even though he's no longer living, or maybe most especially. So, we'll see what happens in the coming weeks, but I hope we can show the deniers that they're reacting in a very normal, predictable human way. Mm-hmm. But together, we must move forward by examining the facts and embracing the common good. You've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. You're a personal astrophysicist. Join us next time for the beginning of another season of All Stars. And until then, I bid you to keep looking.